Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, your friendly neighborhood science radio program. Sit back and relax while we chat to you about some sweet, sweet science. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature nuclear meltdowns, hand washing, and more nanophotonics, courtesy of Ian Wolfe. So let's kick off this week with the topical news. You may or may not have heard that this thing happened in Japan where there was an earthquake and then a tsunami and then I don't... I don't even understand. There's been like a huge hubbub about the nuclear reactor situation in Fukushima and TEPCO and the Japanese government claiming one thing and then another and suddenly there's radiation in the ocean. It's, it's all extremely overwhelming and I'm not even sure I know what a meltdown is. So we're going to ask Ian Wolfe, um, our resident science physics geek, a couple questions about what exactly is going on in this situation. Where would you like to start, Victoria? Well, okay, so I grew up hearing this term meltdown. You know, I watched The Simpsons, and Homer Simpson works in a nuclear reactor. But at the end of the day, what is a meltdown? What does that mean? Well, a meltdown is when the nuclear fuel rods get so hot that the casing around them breaks down. And the fuel rods will melt through anything, like the perfect acid that will melt through any container. So what, what is the fuel? Well, the fuel is going to be uranium or plutonium. In Japan, it's mainly uranium. There's only, I think, one reactor that has some plutonium in it. Okay, and so why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because it's very, very radioactive. This is stuff that's been in the reactor and doing its job and getting as hot as possible so that it can boil lots of water and generate power. And if it keeps on melting, it could melt, be hot enough to melt through the container and unlike Chernobyl, there is a container to hold a meltdown, so they planned in case a meltdown would happen. But it could melt through that again. And there's indications that at least one of the six reactors at the Fukushima power plant has actually molten through its container. But they're not sure. Okay, so why isn't this like a regular fire? I mean, if, a, if this happened in, say, a wood furnace, eventually it would just kind of go away. It would, it would burn itself out. What's going on in Japan? Well, exactly. So you just can't switch off a nuclear reactor because the radioactive fuel is continuing to decay. It's continuing to react with itself once it's got going. And it's just naturally very hot now. So it's going to keep on generating heat from nuclear reactions within the fuel rods. Not enough, perhaps, to boil the water, but enough to be really, really hot so that they needed to constantly bathe it in water. And when the tsunami overcame the regular power, the backup was the diesel generator, and that was overcome by the tsunami as well. So all they had were batteries. And the batteries were there to pump the water to continually cover the reactor, and as it turned out, also the spent fuel rods, the nuclear waste, was stored upstairs in another pool that had to be continually covered with water as well. And what went wrong was, one, the batteries eventually ran out, and the generators still weren't going, and there was no more power which is ironic because things were really, really hot, and if only it was going, there'd be plenty of power. 
And eventually, while they were focusing all their attention on getting the reactors cooled down with seawater from helicopters and so on, when one of the explosions took off the water layer of the nuclear waste rods, and so they started getting really, really hot and releasing radioactive particles into the atmosphere. Okay, so these radioactive particles, are they proportional to the heat that the fuel rods put off, or is it a completely different thing? It sort of is, because there's smoke and there's gas, and it it gets carried away in the smoke and the gas. So you've got cesium-137, which, if it's absorbed in the body, is very, very nasty because it continues decaying and gives you cancer. There's iodine-131, which gets into your thyroid gland, so they're giving people around that area um, normal iodine so that they don't absorb the radioactive iodine. And there's strontium-90, which also gets into gets into the milk, it gets into the food, and again, it can get absorbed in your body and it stays there. These heavy metals tend to stay in your body. Okay. And so this isn't like a regular fire. Like, you, you can't just dis- extinguish it, can you? You can't stop these reactions once they've, once they've started. That's exactly right. They're trying to slow them down, so they're not just spraying it with water. They're also getting boron. The element boron does slow down the reactions a little bit, it inhibits the reaction some. But the problem is they're getting tons and tons of boron. They're mixing it with seawater. They're dumping it from helicopters at huge risk to the pilots of the helicopters and the technicians because they're all getting large doses of gamma radiation. And it's not just not enough. There's at least one meltdown by the look of things. I mean, we haven't got the strict word from the Japanese government and from TEPCO, but everyone thinks at least Reactor 1 has definitely melted down and perhaps broken its metal containment and it's way into the concrete now, which means it could just leak. So what, that would be like Chernobyl? No, no. It It's like Chernobyl in the fact that a lot of radiation is starting to be released, but it's unlike Chernobyl in that Chernobyl was an earlier model reactor where there was no containment vessel. So when it melted down, it just went. And as a result, the explosions put the molten material everywhere and there was a lot of radioactive material spread over Europe very, very quickly. In this case, it's going to be a lot, lot slower. They're detecting very small amounts of radiation around the world. So in America, in Canada, in Europe, and in China, on the coast of China, it's above normal, but it's not yet at you know the terrible levels that they had after Chernobyl. But there is concern that it may get to that point because although they've contained it, nobody knows how to safely deal with contained meltdown. Right, this is the first time. This is the first time. Uh, There's a wonderful little YouTube cartoon going around from a Japanese animator that you may have seen about Nuclear Boy. Yes, and I think we'll be putting that on our Facebook page. I think we will. um, (laughs) Listeners, check our Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash diffusionradio to check out that link. And it's very informative. It explains exactly what is going on in a nuclear meltdown um, in lovely little animated version. Yes, for children. And we can put a link to that on the diffusionradio.com website as well. And that's just a little taster for the upcoming specials we will be running on Diffusion, explaining the exact science of atomic energy, nuclear meltdowns, and also health risks surrounding this increase in radiation. Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, Next up, I spoke to my friend Adam Freeman about the importance of hand washing in medicine and surgery. Okay, so here at Diffusion, we are going to start a little bit of a panel discussion about hand hygiene, and I've managed to rope in my friend Adam Freeman to help me talk about this subject. Good afternoon, Victoria. 
Hello, Adam. So can you tell me why you are particularly well-suited to discuss this topic with me today? Oh, I guess I enjoy clean hands. <laughs> and you study surgery. And <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, yeah. That's, that's uh, pretty I like important. <laughs> <laughs> Cleanliness helps in not, hospitals. Yeah, not, not sort of uh, obsessively clean. You won't, you won't see me pouring hot water into my hands in the street. You're no Lady yeah, Macbeth. The scrub. No, I'm no. <laughs> no, in many ways. Why is hand hygiene an important topic? I guess it's particularly important to, to doctors. Um, now, this is evidenced by uh, the fact that around the turn of uh, last century, being around 1900, um, medicine first became, or was believed to have first become net positive uh, for patients, being that doctors created less harm than, than they did good. Uh, and a, a major contribu- uh, contributor to that was, was uh, thought to be hygiene, the improvement of, of hygiene standards. And so how did that first begin? Well, it's a, it's an interesting tale. I think it's, it's very convoluted. Um, it's believed to have had its origins in in Europe in the mid nineteenth uh, century, where it was found that there was a, something called uh, childbed fever, which is uh, sepsis or overwhelming infection that that tended to be uh, that was that was um, killing lots of uh, lots of new mothers. Uh, so I think they were looking at rates of twenty percent dying after having had their, their their children. So were these were these all mothers, or or just a certain subset of mothers, or well, what was, was causing this, this illness? I guess. Yeah, it was said to be the mothers that had actually had their, their children in the hospitals. So I, I believe, as as uh, we were chatting about before, uh, this is a special interest of yours, and so it's something you've looked into. I do love my infectious diseases. <laughs> and and the and the childbed. <laughs> so I, I believe uh, actually it was there were a few a few contributing things to this being discovered back then. But one of the major ones was a chap named Samuelweis, um, who was a Hungarian obstetrician, who this who noticed that uh, if he if he washed his hands with a particular lime based preparation, uh, his infection rates went down drastically. Now um, this chap got particularly upset with the rest of the establishment when they refused to believe him, um, and ended up writing furious letters and, and being uh, shunned by uh, the Viennese uh, doctors, which is where he was working at the time in, in Italy, and ended up moving all over Europe um, and creating all sorts of ruckus. Um, unfortunately, his life ended rather rather prematurely at 46 and he ironically died of overwhelming infection. But what was left behind him was uh, the acknowledgement that infection certainly was causing this childbed fever and, and leading very much to these women's demise. I mean, he, he got pretty good results, right? Fantastic results, I believe. Yeah, sort of infection rates were cut. Uh, they were slashed from twenty to sort of the low percent, like, which like two or three percent. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's about right. Yeah. So I mean, that that was really an outstanding step forward. Now, shortly after that, Louis Pasteur hit the scene and uh, he started talking about bacteria and, and germs, and and people started to understand what this what was going on. Um, one thing led to another, and uh, and in the U.S., uh, it led to to aseptic technique over there, which is uh, the practice of surgery, which we try to practice now, um, which is where you try to avoid having any bacteria or any germs at all in in an operating field or in any field uh, in medicine uh, where you're penetrating the skin or breaking the skin that could lead to an infection. So, so we've established hand washing is awesome, but can it? Can you have too much of a good thing? I mean, can hand washing actually be bad for you? Well, ironically, Victoria, yes, I believe it can. So uh, most people have on their on their skin they have uh, 
some resident bugs. So it's they have germs and they live in their skin and they have a, a natural balance to those germs. So even now I have bacteria on my hands. Yeah, millions and millions, Victoria. That's disgusting. Yeah. In fact, you can get a special lamp called a woods lamp. Uh, and if you were to shine that on your hands, you would see glowing fluorescently these little bugs. You really shouldn't tell me things like this. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so maybe we'll be creating some obsessive compulsive people with this. But the the thing with compulsive hand washing um, is that it's quite normal to have what we call flora living on your skin. Uh, everybody does, including those the evil bugs such as golden staff, uh, which everyone's scared of. Those, uh, That's a flesh-eating one, isn't it? Oh, I believe so, Victoria. Yeah, on a bad day. <laughs> on a good day, it just kind of lives there. It's funny. I've been asked by many a patient, oh, but he's got golden staff and those those lovely characters that today tonight have done well to sensationalize this um and what most people don't know or many people don't know is that they all have golden staff on their skin it's just it's, it's a natural resident now if you go and wash your hands compulsively and, and excessively you actually destroy the balance that was existing there and you can make yourself more prone to infections like weeds if there's if there's uh grass in the backyard uh, sorry if there's a bare patch of dirt in the gra- in the backyard then the weeds will grow there it's, a, it's the same thing um so if you go and clear all the good grass out of the backyard then the the weeds can get in uh it's the same thing with your skin so you have to tra- treat your skin right that's right you do victoria thank you very much adam <laughs> thank you and that was adam freeman talking to me about hand hygiene you're listening to diffusion science radio Send emails to diffusion at 2SER.com. We are recorded here in the studios of Sydney at 2SER and brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, over the internet at www.diffusionradio.com. And finally, Ian Wolfe brings us part three of nanotechnology. Can nanotechnology cool us down? Jeff Smith, professor in the School of Physics and Advanced Materials at the Science Faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney, explains nanophotonic cooling to Ian Wolfe. Yeah, well, one nanometer is 10 to the minus 9. The basic structures we deal with in this game are typically a few nanometers up to 100, but uh, our energy work sometimes goes well beyond that into micron scale, and you can even put nanostructures on little micron particles, which are more commonly used in, you know, but we, we use all sorts of particles. When we use the word photonics, we're really talking about not, uh, ultraviolet, uh, what we see with our eyes, which is the visible, the rest of the solar spectrum, which we don't see, but is very important, it adds a lot of heat, and the radiation that we give off, we all give off, and most of it's coming off the Earth, and it's the main cooling mechanism of the Earth, the heat, the radiant heat at night and in the daytime, and they go off to the atmosphere. But what people don't also realise, there's a lot of energy coming in from the atmosphere, and, and we, we learn to control both because if the energy coming back from the atmosphere is, is really what global warming problems about. It's absorbed by what's out there. So it's if, the, if it's out in the open air, the, the, what's out there is the atmosphere. The atmosphere is, you know, whatever the weather bureau tells you is, or a little bit cooler. And because it's at a finite temperature, it also sends radiation back into Earth. So if it wasn't for that radiation coming, life would be totally unlivable on Earth. We, living matter couldn't survive, we'd be too cold. So we need that. We need some greenhouse effect, but we don't want too much. <laughs> and I understand there are 
frequencies of light that do go straight through the atmosphere? Well, it's the ones we see with our eyes for a start and a lot of the solar energy. And also in the thermal radiation part, the part that where this heat comes off and goes out into outer space, some of it, most of it, in fact, is absorbed by the atmosphere and about two-thirds of that comes back. That's the radiation that comes back. The part that goes straight out into outer space, there are special wavelengths which uh, nanotechnology helps us engineer to get the light through. What's strange from a, from a scientific point of view, the atmosphere is largely black for, to thermal radiation except for this small window. In other words, nearly all the uh, thermal wavelengths do not get through the atmosphere due to water and CO2 and uh, increasingly other nasty gases where <laughs> from refrigerants and nitrous oxides and so on and methane. But uh, CO2 is the one that the politicians and the others focus on. And so with this window for thermal radiation, mm -hmm. is that something we can use for cooling? Yes, indeed. Uh, we, we've developed some technology that basically we send radiation out only through that window. So you, what you're doing, two things. You're channeling the radiation to where we know it can primarily get out. And secondly, we're reflecting all the incoming stuff, which is from the black part of the atmosphere. And so the combined effects mean you can get very cold. Uh, you have to do some other tricks too because any surface on Earth gets heat from the air so we, we do some tricks to uh, keep the local air from heating up our surface too much and we can get very cold. Well, basically what happens at night, you cool to temperatures which are below the atmosphere. So the Weather Bureau says it's 20. We can, in some systems, we can cool to, say, 15 and others we can cool to below 10. It depends what we want to do. If for air conditioning, we we use the other type of system that cools not quite so cold because uh, cooling a few degrees below uh, ambience or the physics of heat pumping by radiation is you, you pump a lot more heat when you're closer to the atmospheric temperature. And so for air conditioning, uh, which is you can cool buildings off overnight or store it up in cold water, and that's what we're focusing on at the moment. We can also do refrigeration, which is very cold. It takes a lot of time to get the amount of heat out uh, in, in a big volume, say several bottles. We've killed off beer bottles and <laughs> a fridge full of cans and stuff like that. So if people are trying to visualise this on the nanoscale, does this mean that the heat radiation is coming from whatever's hot, whatever the bottles mm. of beer or, or whatever, <laughs> and it's hitting your nanostructures? Mm. Is it then changing into well, the right frequency to go through the window? That's right, because it, the, the radiation that comes off things, depending on what materials they're made of, and, and, and if you have nanoparticles of these, the right materials, they, they have very special vibrations called phonons or surface phonons, which are actually resonating. That means they're very efficient uh, radiators at a very narrow band of wavelengths, and we can tailor those wavelengths specifically to the window in the atmosphere. And so you know, that, that enables you to achieve these things. And funnily enough, they're very abundant materials, only silicon, oxygen and carbon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so are the elements involved, that's very nice from a technological viewpoint. We don't have exotic materials. <laughs> Our broader work is about uh, keeping buildings cool in warm climates. It's a very important thing, as you know. More and more people are getting air conditioners. The electricity utilities can't meet the peak demand and so that has become a very big problem. It's also just a total problem in the amount of electricity that's used, 
So all our efforts in putting photo cells or anything else up was getting swamped by a lot of other things going on, including this uh, increase in air conditioning loads. So if you can keep buildings cool by other means, and traditionally people just thought, oh, you know, you had to put lots of pink bats in the roof and make them even thicker or something. And I've worked on Australian building codes, which for energy efficiency, currently they focus on that. And unfortunately, because a lot of buildings we've worked on with these white special, no, not necessarily white, and as you said, they can be coloured, but they, they reflect the sun very strongly and they also do our other trick, both. We radiate strongly and we reflect. And from a scientific viewpoint, just interesting enough, that's the, the radiation part means it's black there, the solar part means it's white. So if I use the word black and white, people understand, even though that really only applies to what you see with your eyes. So we have materials that change their properties quite dramatically, depending where you are. And if you put them on a, on a roof, one that's very high solar reflective and very, high at, very good at radiating, you, you can create what's called a cool roof. And if you do that and you can pump a lot of heat out at night of the building as well as keep it cool in the day. So the roof doesn't get anything like as hot as the average roof in Sydney. And so we've looked at airports some um, factories and warehouses and, uh, and shopping centres and supermarkets and we get very significant changes in the reductions in the air conditioning loads that are needed. If you can do that enough buildings, it it has a, a quite a substantial impact on these. It would have on these peak loads. Is there a problem in winter for that, or is it? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, you have to juggle around to where you are with the local climate. And there's a lot of variation necessary to go to that absolute extreme, say in Tasmania or up in the Alps or somewhere. But in large parts of Australia, you're dominated by the uh, cooling load. And the other thing is, if it's a building that has lots of people inside or work. Uh, construct, you know, a factory or things. Some of them we've uh, worked on have a lot of what we call internal loads. There's a lot of, and so, uh, and these types of things are much better for those because they don't need a lot of heating. They need some. So, we, but we can tailor the optical properties for the total picture. But what's very interesting is once you do this by keeping the roof cooler, you don't need as big an R factor, that is the, you know, we call the pink bats, we label them by their R value, Maybe a lot of people will know that. So you have R 1.6 is about 50 millimetres of pink bat and R 3.2 is double the thickness and so on. And that, you know, is the, the way you block heat. Now if you think about it, the thicker the R is, it also means it traps the heat in the building. So using our techniques, we've found that you can actually reduce the, uh, and large buildings in particular, uh, warehouses and shopping centres, reduce the R value and get better overall performance. And interesting enough, we also thought that wouldn't work very good in humid climates like we've had in the last <laughs> couple <laughs> of weeks in Sydney, but overall Sydney is still good for it. But places like Singapore and Kuala Lumpur and that, and we've done some work up there. And uh, interesting enough, we, we were surprised it still works well in these places. And... Uh, uh, especially you know, with large internal loads. So we, we have an advantage even there in cutting air conditioning loads through the roof. There mm. are lots of other sources of heating, uh, sorry, cooling demand in a building, but uh, you know, this can have a big impact. And I just, just in passing, I'll mention that um, 
There is another. If enough buildings do this, you can actually make the whole city colder. Wow. Because we have a big problem at the moment. Wherever you build uh, cities and you take over the rural land, the amount of sun that's absorbed goes up. The whole city gets much hotter than the surrounding countryside. And the roads and the roofs are the main culprits here. And so anything you can do to more roofs and possibly make the roads a shade lighter, you've got to be careful there, but you can do a bit, will, has enormous potential impact. And these roofs we're talking about, could, we, cause we, and we find actual extra cooling from these roofs over and above what we predict with our simple physics models. And it looks as though the cool that produced in the night is, is going down and doing other things, which is quite interesting. When it does get too cold in winter, it's a place you just don't use that sort of cooling. No, you, you change. Well, we, we actually have options where we can have uh, change the whole thing entirely around, and that's another trick with nano. You can actually ah. switch things or you can use other tricks so we can, we can convert from a cooling to a... Uh, uh, is that with the flick of a switch? Uh, sort of. But that's, that's a impressive. slightly advanced, but there's also some simple ways of achieving that too. For instance, our system where we block the flow of air when we want to get really cold, which we haven't gone into much, we can open that up and the roof will get hotter. So, or we could even have a. By the way, these if you you can have a cover that does that that's solar reflective and the roof underneath is black, so you can open it up or not black but darker. So there's yes. all sorts of tricks depending on where you are, and. Australia's very difficult at times because it's temperate. That means we have, you know, moderately cold in the winter and moderately hot in the summer. And so dealing with both is often harder than, than dealing with, say, some cold place like Sweden or some hot place like Singapore. Jeff Smith, thank you very much. You're welcome, man. You can find more about Jeff Smith's nanotech cooling at science.uts.edu.au. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2ser.com. We love to hear from you. Please tell us what you thought about the show. And if you'd like to be on radio, we are constantly looking for new volunteers. So feel free to email in and tell us what you feel passionately about in science. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe and Adam Freeman. Diffusion has been produced by me in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and broadcast nationally across the community radio network. I'm Victoria Bond, and join us next week for more Science Wondering on Diffusion Science Radio.